Yeah, it's just um, talk, to, talk to me again. How's it going, Bryn? To tell me what you had for lunch. I had two ham and cheese sandwiches, which is quite decadent, but also extremely plain. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's right. I am on the road to Bristol. Currently curving the bottom of the M25, heading west. I love driving to Bristol to visit the guys at the roastery there in Clifton. They do, they roast all our coffee if you weren't already aware of that. I'm less keen on the journey, um, but the joy of arriving, meeting the guys and gals, getting into my coffee nerd zone um, is always, always worth the three hour drive there and back. So this time I thought we'd make a podcast out of it. Josh Clark, head of coffee, and Sam McQuaig, head coffee saucer at Clifton Coffee are going to be coming on the show today. They are remarkably knowledgeable guys when it comes to the coffee industry. They're also lovely blokes and they've got big hearts for justice. So since we have a podcast called the Justice and Coffee Podcast, it makes total sense, doesn't it, that we actually focus at least the occasional episode on coffee. I'm excited to sit down with the guys. I think, collectively, they've forgotten more about coffee than I'll ever know. But also, there is such a clear link between the coffee industry and exploitation, human trafficking in some cases, and injustice in many cases. How it can be that uh, we can pay £2.40 for a coffee and sort of five cents of that goes to the farmer you know what's happened there anyway we'll get into all of that uh, later on today when I get there and record the next episode of the Justice and Coffee podcast okay so welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast Josh Clark and Sam McQuake welcome Thank you very much. Oh, you got my name right. That's very impressive. Did I pronounce that Yeah, okay? you did very well. That's well, good. they're off to a good start. We've yeah, known yeah. each other for a while now. I'm confident that I've got you know, the main things. Yeah, I think you've got a few things. You've got it locked down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'll always start these podcasts the same way, right, is that we talk a little bit about coffee. I like to know that the person I'm sitting with is a coffee drinker. A lot of the time they're not, um, apparently, but, but I'm confident that today that's going to be different. Yeah. What talk to me about what coffee we're drinking? What's sat in front of us at the moment? This is over to you, Sam. Cool. So um, we are drinking right now uh, Chemex, first of all, uh, which is a type of drip coffee. Uh, yeah. It's been made with a, uh, a lovely natural Yemen coffee from a village called Banio Fair. So um, we. What, do, you, <laughs> do you want to say some more about who we are, or shall I? Uh, shall no, I, I want to know about the coffee. Cool. We're gonna we're gonna talk lots about you. Cool. But this is this is delicious, and and you yeah. can offer probably a better description of it than I would normally give. Cool. So, um, 
Yemen is an extremely challenging origin to operate in, as you might imagine, mm. um, the, for a number of reasons. But it's got a huge historical... So Yemen's the first place that coffee was taken to after Ethiopia. Um, so things like Mocha, for example, is um, associated with coffee because of the port city of Al Makar, which is where most of the world's coffee shipped from um, until uh, sort of like middle 1600 sort of time when the Dutch kind of got involved and stole some seeds. So there's a huge amount of um, a huge amount of coffee history in Yemen, but obviously these days with the blockade and all of those things, it's very difficult to get goods in and goods out. Yes. Um, so. We are working with the villages of Banio Fair. Um, it's a really small village. It's on the outskirts of Damar, so which is western Yemen. Um, if you Google Damar, actually, what comes up is there was a very recent Saudi drone strike on a prison there that killed quite a large Gosh. amount of people um, about two days after we bought this coffee. So wow. it's uh, it's bang in the middle of the war zone. Wow. Um, Banio Fair is yeah very remote. Um, there's no real road access. There's certainly not tarmac roads. It's all dirt and rocks and all that sort of thing. It was very difficult to get in and out. Uh, and until very recently, the farmers there were all growing cats, uh, which is the QAT. Um, which you chew, right? Yes, yeah, it's mm. a drug, basically. Right. Um, and it's kind of like the local drug of choice in right. a lot of that region. In, in a lot of other, like, sort of uh, Central and East African coffee-growing regions as well. There's a, a lot, lot on lot Ethiopia of cat, as yeah, well. Huge amount. Yeah. So we're working with the villagers there on a kind of value creation project to try and de-incentivize cat production uh, and move everything back onto coffee. So that was the start of it. Right. Um, the and there's huge amounts of challenges there that we can talk about as well. Like the um, even just in so a lot of the trees in Yemen are like 70, 100 years old. They're not productive. They've never been pruned. So your average yield per tree is like a kilo of cherry uh, a year, okay. which is so average conversion. Sorry, I'm getting really. <laughs> I, I'm, <laughs> So yeah, where yeah. do I stop? Yeah. But then that's fascinating. Carry yeah. on. Yeah. Carry so on. so coffee is a cherry for those of people who are listening that aren't aware. It's the seed of fruit. We might need to start sort of basics, work yes. our way up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so average conversion from cherry into a green coffee product, which is the ro- like the pre-roasted coffee, mm. um, is six point two to one. Um, that would be like a normal conversion. So a kilo of cherry divide that by 6.2 that's how much green coffee you're going to get out right Right. so that's per tree now average in ethiopia would be five kilos 10 you're doing like really really well yeah um somewhere like brazil you might see 65 or 70 kilos per tree right Right. so we're talking incredible like a 70th per tree of the production of brazil yeah they also don't achieve anywhere near that 6.2 to 1 that's Mm. an industry average they're getting much more like 10 to 1 Mm. so each tree is producing probably uh, when all the conversions are said and done it's really about 100 grams of green coffee um, which then will lose about 15 percent when we roast so you'd be looking at each tree will produce about 85 grams of roasted coffee so that's going to be what sort of five cups something like that give or take yeah wow so incredibly low yields Mm. yeah Mm. um and there's a that's water access. Mm. There's no fertilizers in all of Yemen because you can use them to make explosives. Oh, wow. Um, so there's a blockade blocking anything that can be used to up your production coming yeah. into the country, basically. So, so that's what we're drinking. Yeah. Yes, nice snapshot description of what we're drinking. Yeah, I'm well. sorry, that was a bit of a boast. Like the, <laughs> there's a lot of info to get See, across. This is it. the difference, right? Is that when I introduce a coffee, if, if we do introduce a coffee, I'll normally say, you know, it's from Brazil and it tastes really nice. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you offered a little bit more information, but that, that makes sense. 
what I said in the intro to this is that you both have probably forgotten more than I will ever know <laughs> about coffee. And I, I love it. You know, I don't know how many of our listeners will. I'm hoping we can maybe educate a few. But I find it fascinating. And, and, and we're going to talk more about that. But, you know, I'd love to know now, actually, maybe you could describe a little bit about how you came to work for Clifton and, and what you do here. Josh, we met. I never heard of Clifton Coffee Roasters yep. until, bizarrely, we got connected through a, a family relationship. And it's turned out to be... Yeah, an absolutely key partner for Blue Bear. So how did you end up here? Uh, I'd say maybe by chance to a certain extent. I definitely ended up in the coffee industry with a bit of a stumble, um, put it that way. I uh, went to university in 2009. Where did, you, where did you study? I went to what was then called UIC, which was uh, the Cardiff sports-based university. Went there to study uh, sports rehabilitation, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. I yeah. uh, had no idea about specialty coffee. Yeah. It's just sort of this wide-eyed boy from the valleys heading to the big smoke, which was Cardiff, yeah. <laughs> to try and, uh, try and learn about city life and, and read about something that I uh, thoroughly enjoyed doing. That is the degree of choice for anybody that doesn't know what to do with their lives is sports science. Sports, so 100%. It, it was for me. It was, it was like we're in the same club. More common than we know about. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just while at university... Um, some friends were involved uh, sort of in coffee, just got some extra jobs. Um, I got quite a um, kind of nasty injury hmm. um, and needed to, to, well, continue doing university work. Wanted to find a cool space to be able to do that. Though it wasn't uni halls, which is not the most, uh, like, yeah, not the best place to do work, I guess. There's a lot of distractions. Gosh, yeah. So I found myself in coffee shops. Also needed a little bit of uh, spare cash, being a, being a broke student yeah. as well. It's no discredit to my parents, get that weekly allowance in there as well. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, really needed to try and get a job. Um, spent a lot of time in coffee shops and thought, you know what, I, this, this is really cool. I'd like to be able to do this. Yeah. Um, so started just literally washing dishes for a, for a friend's deli that was at the end of my road. That sort of then uh, rolled into uh, doing a bit of a barista course and, and making some coffee. And then just sort of falling head over heels into the coffee industry yeah. throughout my time at university, constantly uh, chasing new coffees to taste, to trying different regions, different roasters. Um, and that sort of carried on until, uh, until I finished my university degree. I had my final exam on a Wednesday. Uh, and then on the Friday, I started full-time in the coffee industry, helping uh, manage some, some shops uh, in Cardiff. Wow, 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 straight out of university. Yeah, and then that sort of carried on for a, for a couple more years, helped open a few more places, um, got more and more excited about coffee. Uh, at that point, Clifton had just started uh, a roasting program. Mm. It started in 2013, uh, the April, um, the year I graduated. And... Uh, and yeah, got offered a job to help develop a wholesale uh, department at, at Clifton Coffee. Um, at the time, I was really reluctant to, to take the job to a certain extent. I didn't really know much about Clifton Coffee in all honesty, yeah. apart from that they'd supplied some pretty big businesses along the way. Um, and I, uh, yeah, was just curious. Um, just got married. And my wife was like, we need a mortgage. Yeah. We want to buy a house. <laughs> pretty young then. Yeah, pretty young as well. Um, 20, what, are you 23 when you got married? 23, yeah, I've been married five years this year. Good effort, congratulations. Um, thanks, mate. And, and looking back through it, I guess, yeah, from what I believe as a Christian as well, I, I got ordained a lot of the stuff and where I've, where I've ended up and what I've ended up doing. Stumbled into crazy conversations with people that have just steamrolled into relationships just like this with Blue Bear now. Yeah. So, uh, needed a mortgage, wanted to try and get a house. 
Um, was never going to do that if I'd set up my own coffee business. I just started doing that in Cardiff. Right. Uh, so my wife just sort of pushed me in the right direction and said, <laughs> maybe you should try this thing out at Clifton Coffee. It yeah. could turn into something that you, you know, you're going to enjoy. It's full-time coffee. It's not other stuff. I was working in a tea house and um, yeah, you might enjoy it. So it started uh, April um, 2014 uh, with Clifton Coffee. Um, and as we sit down today, you are the head of coffee. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Director of coffee. Oh yeah. my word! They keep giving him new names. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah he's gonna run out he's, soon. <laughs> our, our mobility knows no bounds on this guy. <laughs> How high can you take it? No, yeah. So I now work as the director of coffee at Clifton. Um, it's been great working here the last sort of four and a half years. Been able to to really uh, sort of cement um, the sort of ideas and passions that we want to put through the coffee program and yeah. bring in on like-minded people, just like you know Sam here now. Yeah. He's just taken on the green coffee program and, and helped accelerate it faster than I ever could. Yeah. Um, and the same with Paul in our wholesale team and everybody else that's involved now as well. So being able to create a really great ethos, a good yeah. company working environment with like-minded people who just want to take uh, what we do at Clifton Coffee and just specialty coffee further every yeah. day. Yeah, and I get that. And that's what I consider myself for, so fortunate to have come across you guys. And, you know, they if you weren't already aware, Blue Bear, all of our coffee is roasted by Clifton. And it would... Uh, our, Business certainly to date wouldn't exist without their support. Uh, so we are absolutely reliant upon on everything they've been able to, to produce and do for us is is very much out of their their generous spirit, and and I'm really grateful for it. Sam, was it was it a similar thing for you? Was it straight out of school? Or how did you end up? Yeah, so coffee's coffee? full of accidental careers. I think. Right. The, um, so I'm also a, quite a similar path in terms of barista onwards. So I. My first job in coffee was at Costa when I was 16. Come on. Yeah, so I was um, a very typical 16-year-old, maybe a, a little bit more rambunctious and, and naughty than many 16-year-olds, and my mum thought I needed a bit of uh, an excuse to get out of the house that wasn't causing trouble. So she was walking by. I'm from uh, kind of Hampshire, sorry, border. So she was in the town along, it's called Hazelmere, and she was walking by. There's a Costa there, and they had a little sign in the window saying that they're looking for part-time staff. Yeah. So I did... Um, I got myself a little Saturday job, and then I finished my GCSEs, like pre-GCSEs. Wow. So I finished my GCSEs, and then I did um, one day on the weekend and one afternoon when I was at college. Were you straight onto the machines, or was it like... Oh, yeah, no, I did... Wiping tables and stacking shelves. Wiping tables, stacking shelves and stuff at first, but only during the training period. So I was making coffee from, like, before my 17th birthday. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Good uh, although it's very, I'd say... I don't know that these days it's been a long time since I went to Costa, but the uh, the procedures were quite different to what we would teach at the training centre here. That's really? that's going to be my tactful way. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that, not say any more. Um, and then I, so I did that all the way through college. Um, I was still I, on the Nescafe by this point. Yeah, just, oh, just yeah. steering oh, it yeah, in. Yeah, don't yeah. judge. Yeah, I'm a true coffee lifer. <laughs> yeah. um, but 16 was, I mean, how far back is that? Uh, well, that's a very good question. So that would have been 2016. What? No, sorry. <laughs> what, makes you sorry, it's the end, it's, so just for everyone at home, it's the end of the it's the end of a long day. It would have been two thousand six. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So I was born in nineteen ninety. So there's some easy maths there, but it's still too difficult for me, which is worrying because my job is mostly financial. <laughs> oh God, your yeah. coffee maths are a lot yeah, better. Yeah, I can vouch yeah, you yeah, there. I hope so. Um, so yeah, I did that for a couple of years, and then I was so I worked my way up to like being barista maestro, which is kind of head barista for cool. a, a Costa store. Um, so I was kind of responsible for for coffee quality at the, at the Costa store, at least the impact that I could have on it. Um, and then, so that's like a whole training thing and all of that. And then I got offered the uh, Rising Stars program when I was 18, which is Costa's like executive 
fast track thing. Um, so people who they think that will be good, they shoot them up through this thing and you go off to head office. Uh, but I turned it down to go and teach scuba diving in Thailand. Which, oh, wow. Which was a very good decision. It was a good decision. Yeah, I'm very happy with that. Yeah. So I did, um, so I had two gap years. I did six months in Thailand, uh, six months in Costa, six months in Thailand, six months in Costa, um, and kind of financed my lifestyle in Thailand with the, with the Costa work. Um, went off to uni. So I was the, the last time, the last trip I had to Thailand, I was out there and there's a few things that happened that had a, a friend of mine got quite ill. Um, and basically the long and the short of it is he had to have his leg amputated. Oh my word. Um, because of a infection that he picked up while he was diving and the, because of the way the payment system works and all of that, you can't, you get paid per student per dive. Uh, or at least you did at the time, this is 10 years ago, so it may have changed. But you get paid per student per dive. If you don't dive, you don't get paid. So you had a, a mosquito bite that got more and more infected. There's a lot of staphylococcus in the water around and all these sorts of horrible skin diseases and stuff. So it got more and more infected. He kept diving. It got into his bones. And oh, then, wow. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't afford to get home. So he was diving to save up money to buy a flight to get back to the UK to get treated because he didn't have any medical insurance. Wow. And by the time he got back, they ended up having to take his knee off, of, uh, his leg off above the Definitely, knee. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of like, maybe this isn't the best long term. Like right now I'm 18, but when I'm 30, is this going to be where I want to where I want to be for the rest of my life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was the, the last year that the uni fees were three grand before they were going go okay. to go to nine. So I was like, right, now's my time. Yeah. So I applied um, applied to uni from Thailand from an internet cafe yeah. with like one megabyte yeah. internet speed <laughs> yeah. or something. Good thing, good thing. Yeah, yeah, literally, it's yeah. like a half an hour to load the form type thing. Same um, as the bellies, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah still like that. <laughs> <in the middle. laughs> um, and then, yeah, so I did international relations at uni, um, which is actually quite relevant now, but I just mm. did it at the time because I thought it would be interesting. Yeah. Um, and I ended up specialising in stuff that isn't that relevant. So I did um, broad IR and then I specialised in my third year in more kind of military and nuclear strategy and stuff is what I did my uh, my dissertation on. Fascinating. Which is very interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, met Mrs. at uni. Uh, recently my, married. Yes, recently married. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, like a month or something, I think. Nice. It feels much longer. because First four weeks going well? Yeah, well, I, I spent half it in Uganda. So the, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I went to Uganda four days after we got married. Which, yeah. It wasn't a honeymoon. It exactly. wasn't, yeah, it wasn't. It was oh, we didn't work. make you go either. I'm just no, put that no, out no. there as well. <laughs> yeah, it was a work. What a She's boss. an infinitely patient woman. So yeah. The, um, yeah, yeah, I'm very lucky. Good quality. Yeah, so I met her at uni, um, and we we met in third year. Quite serious, quite or got together in third year. We're quite serious quite soon, and we're from completely different parts of the country. Yeah. So we went to London together um, because her sister had a spare room in her student flat, and I was like, right, I've, I need a job. I know everything about coffee because I've worked in Costa for a couple of years. So I <laughs> walked down the street, and there was a coffee shop with a sign in the window saying they needed some staff. So I applied in there. Um, they took me on, and it turned out to be it was two businesses. Uh, one was like a kind of tea room, cafe, bar, coffee shop, and the other one next to it was an extremely high-end coffee shop, and they were owned by the same oh, cool. same company. Where is, where is this? Uh, so it's one of the businesses. The high-end shop has closed now because we all left at the same time, uh, but it's around the corner from King's Cross. It's okay. called so Drink Shop Do is the cocktail bar slash tea room slash thing, and next to it was Dash, which was Drink Shop and Dash, and it was a mostly takeaway, extremely high-end specialty coffee shop. Wow, okay. Basically made all its money selling coffee to the Guardian offices right, down right, the road. Right. Oh, so yeah, that's just in King's Cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so we'd be super busy for like an hour and a half and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd yeah, play yeah. with coffee all day. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, um, so kind of got the bug there. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> living in central London on barista wages isn't great. Right. Um, so I was aggressively pursuing careers in any other area of coffee that wasn't making coffee for a living. Um, just purely out of money more than anything. Yeah. Um, me and the missus moved to Bath because it was 
Well, we couldn't afford to live in London, so we moved Is to the second. Is it cheaper in Bath? No, it's no, not, yeah. No. But there's good coffee. Bath and Bristol, it's kind of, if you're not in London, that's an area where you should be, really. Yeah. Um, so I worked my way up, kind of cafes and stuff there. And then I was writing, I was doing... Um, I actually interviewed Josh for a website that's that I right, had yeah. like I six that. years ago or something. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was shortly after Josh started here. Yeah. I was. I had this website called A Flat White a Flat With. Flat White With, I yeah. remember that. And I kind of go around. A Flat and, White With? Yes, so I would go and it's no longer live on the internet, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to pay the Squarespace fees anymore. <laughs> but it's, um, so I would hit up various people in the coffee industry and then go and have a coffee with them. Yeah, and, uh, and not just, a million miles away from what, what we're doing. Yeah, although this was, this was old school, so it was you know written down. I would transcribe, I would record it on my phone and then transcribe transcribe the conversation which was maybe four hours of stopping and starting typing <laughs> yeah. it wasn't I didn't think about it very well um, but that got me and I was doing some writing for like Perfectly Daily Grind and Sprudge and some of these like industry yeah. news websites and things and that got me a bit of attention from people who were looking for someone to do a good job so I got hit up by a company called Union um, Union Coffee yeah Union Hand Roasted Coffee they're probably the Arguably the biggest, if not one of the biggest players in the UK specialty market. Mm-hmm. Pioneers, I think. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of like from green. San Francisco, aren't they? Uh, the from guys. US? So they spent some time in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. So Jeremy and Stephen are British guys, um, but they did. They lived in San Francisco for a while, and they took a lot of inspiration from like Pete's, and and they were roasting like a long, long time ago, like right. very like nineties, like kind of yeah. very long before the coffee boom. So they scouted me, not them personally, but the company scouted me and approached me for a sales role in the Southwest. Um, hired me for a field sales role without a driving license, which is a bold move. So the first couple of months I was going around on trains and buses trying to cover no, like, no, no. go and visit a cafe in a village with no train station. <laughs> but we, yeah, it was interesting. Um, did that for a while and then actually Josh hit me up Reached and said, out. yeah, there's a role at Clifton going and, then, yeah. and the rest is history. So been here best part of three years now which is yeah madness really when you think it's about been it quick really, yeah it's flown past that's wow. cool wow. i i mean some people are going to wonder you know what's the connection and as much as coffee is in the title of the podcast we run a coffee company we're producing this 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 podcast as a product uh, actually the the line between the issues of you know human trafficking exploitation transparent supply chains overlap hugely with the coffee industry it's funny i was doing a bit of research the day for a talk and i was, it was looking into uh, you know the the impact of the transatlantic slave trade and it talked in the historical terms about the, the cotton industry and yeah. minerals and diamonds and coffee and how slavery existed in all of these areas and i'm thinking well actually they exist in exactly the same areas now um so i i'd love to be able to in our podcast today just sort of tie up those issues to some extent, of how we can be involved in the coffee industry, how we can work in some fragile parts of the world um, and actually support the communities that grow coffee rather than avoid them. You're both very well primed to, to, to discuss that. So, I, I mean, it's a big theme, but I just am aware that one of the things that I'm really impressed with, with you guys is just the variety of coffee you can offer and the lengths of time you put into to sourcing those arrangements like josh could you give us an example i'm thinking of one of the coffees we've just started to sell in ethiopia yep. about just an example of what we can do with um you know, supporting communities that are growing coffee in developing nations yeah so i think one of the things that we really wanted to do when launching uh, our direct trade program or at least taking it to the next level we, we'd sort of been dealing direct with el salvador as a country uh, when we first started the roastery and that's sort of been set up but 
As the roastery began to grow, I was acutely aware that I wanted to, to take further control over the supply chains and really invest back into the producers that were growing delicious coffee for us um, and just try and broaden that reach. We were using some great importers um, who were offering us great coffee um, and we were sort of getting to a position where we could uh, yeah, venture out a bit more and start, uh, start a really active sourcing program. Um, which is sort of the time when Sam joined us as well. So we sat down one day in this room, actually, in our training room. And um, we were like, right, cool. Where do we want to see our sourcing program in like two years' time? Yeah. So we were like, okay, these are the countries that we like coffee from. Uh, they sort of fit into the ideology, you know, of what we're trying to achieve at Clifton, the kind of flavor profiles that we want to put out there, the stuff that we know that baristas like as well. Um, and uh, let's build it. So we put a plan in place, sort of month by month, season by season, harvest by harvest, mm -hmm. that took us to January 2020. Here we are. And we almost. are almost yeah. here with all the coffees yeah. that we uh, wanted to contract pretty yeah. much in contract by them. Um, so one of the trips that was most exciting for us, as the dishwasher finishes <laughs> <laughs> from, from the end of a busy training day, um, one of the things that we were most uh, excited about, well, personally, me, was, was Ethiopia. Mm. Um, just fascinated by Ethiopia uh, as a coffee-producing country. So I'm new to coffee. You know, I'm, I'm sticking with this. We've probably got 20 minutes in. What, <laughs> where is, what's the link between coffee and Ethiopia? Give me the story. Okay, so if you read any uh, online article or book as such of where coffee originated from, there are maybe two schools of thought, um, if, but if you speak to anybody that has a relation to Africa of any kind, they'll tell you that coffee was founded in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. particularly um, in and around the regions of, of Kaffa. Um, there's more to discuss about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That. Keep, keep it light. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> a diet version. Yeah, um, unless you speak to the people of Yemen, they'll be convinced that the coffee came from there. But yeah. we, uh, yeah, uh, we think the coffee came from, from Kaffa, um, and... Which is why it's called coffee. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and it's just so just dynamically, uh, sorry, biodynamically diverse there. And there's just so, like, a lot of the coffee is, is forest coffee there. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily intended for um, for consumption, as it were. The story of the dancing goat is probably one that's gone gone around. Which is? <laughs> <laughs> that there is a goat herder in, in Kaffir in Ethiopia. And he uh, began to notice that his goats began to perform or behave they were like strangely jumping around and stuff yeah, with yeah. Uh, erratic performances with high levels of energy from these cherries that they'd been eating mm. and the story is that the the goat herder decided to take some of these cherries and and taste them and see what he could do with them to put them over an open pan and start yeah, well, he, roasting uh, i think it's i think he's supposed to it varies very much <laughs> like the, this is one of those things but i think the thing is he ate the fruit that's right there's seeds inside and he tried to chew one up and he went, oh, this is horrible. And he spat it out into the fire. And then the aroma of oh. roasted wonderful coffee. roasted coffee started to drift out from the fire and then he roasted it. I thought you were going to say he fully digested it and then he noticed after passing. No, coffee. that's something different. <laughs> that's yeah. the one but yeah. we could be onto fifth wave coffee there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's so the, a... the story is that's where the, the coffee is sort of, maybe as we know it loosely, was, was born. Mm. Um, Arabica. Arabica, definitely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we're back in Ethiopia. We're in Ethiopia. And you're telling me about the amazing, excuse me, I'm eating a 
a sandwich whilst we talk. So and professional as ever. <laughs> we're running pretty low on the... Um, There's a little top-up if you want to make it. Oh, yeah, 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 there you go. Bro. Well, I've not left you guys with anything. No, don't you worry, mate. It's okay. We taste coffee all day. So. <laughs> like nine coffees into there. Yeah. <laughs> I can barely see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're in Ethiopia yes. and we are excited, or we were getting really excited about it as a country. We wanted to work direct there for, for, a, um, for a while. Mm. Well, at least I had... More often than not, our conversations go, Sam, I really like coffee from this country. How do we get it into a... How do we set the logistics? Josh, this is far more complicated than you realize. Uh, give me three months and I'll get back to you, basically. Like, uh, yeah. So we booked our flights to Ethiopia and I was like, Sam, we're going now. We've got to get it sorted. So we've been working with, um, with uh, Phil Schluter from, from OLM Specialty Europe um, for a couple of years. Bought some good coffee and Phil was very willing to, to help us set up a, um, a direct supply chain. Um, so the partners that we work with on the ground are, um, are an export company called BNT, uh, Bray and Teddy, who are probably two of... This is BNT, it's <laughs> Bray and Teddy. Yeah, yeah. Um, are they American? No, 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 no they're Ethiopian. Ethiopian. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, they are two of probably, I guess, maybe the most reputable. Yeah, in, know, terms, of in specialty, terms of specialty. Yeah, yeah. They're one of the largest specialty exporters. Mm. And, uh, and Phil had been working with them for a period, of, I think, of about 20 years or something. It's something like that. He'd been quite instrumental in helping them scale, I think, from two guys with, with a dream, yeah, basically. Cool. It sounds cliche, but yeah. Um, so we were introduced to them on the ground in Ethiopia last November, um, and uh, they pretty much gave us a tour of, of the, the country, I guess, and a yeah. full understanding of what Ethiopian supply chains look like, how washing stations work, how currency conversions work there as well. Which That's is quite complex. It's one, very yeah. complicated, and in Ethiopia more so than other places. But carry on the story, yes, and we'll dig yes, into yes, that yes, in a minute. Yes. Yeah. And it was just one of the most surreal trips I think I've ever been on, um, coffee-wise, anyway, so far. Um, the bit of context was that we... Uh, 2017, we were asked to to roast the coffee for the World Coffee uh, Cup Tasting Championships that were taking place in Belo Horizonte, Horizonte in uh, Brazil. Wow. So we roasted up all this coffee and uh, we sent it over for the for the World Championships. Did you take part in that? Uh, not that year. Okay. Um, the year after, I More did. More to come. Come on. <laughs> and so we sent all the coffee over, and um, we were going to go over and brew on the brew bar there. We had this sponsorship. We're like, great, this is great brand exposure mm. for us, particularly as we're launching this direct trade partnership now. And um, yeah, we'd arranged to, to fly to Brazil to meet uh, some people, some farmers that we producers mm. that we work with out there, go to the show. Then I was due to then fly from Brazil to Ethiopia um, and meet Sam there. So Sam had already gone ahead. Uh, gone to Ethiopia um, a couple of days, maybe five days, I think it was. Yeah, actually. about five days before. I had a time um, to start understanding Ethiopia as a country and how we could get the coffee that we sort of want out. Which and you can easily do in five days, right? Oh, it's easy peasy, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I arrive, as we go into the day that we're going to go to Brazil, the flight gets cancelled. Um, and they're like, well, we can get you on another flight, which was 24 hours later. But the, the trip length is like a day as well. So by the time we'd have gotten to Brazil, we'd have been there maybe for, I don't know, like eight hours before I'd have needed to then get on a plane from Brazil to fly to Ethiopia. Mm. So I ended up just not going to Brazil and going direct to, to Ethiopia. Um, I arrived in Addis Ababa overnight flight, um, which was, yeah, 
a bit of a surreal experience. Landed at about six o'clock in the morning mm. in Ethiopia, and I was told that I was being collected at the airport. So you're on uh, your own. I was on my own at this point. Never yeah. been to Africa. No, I've been to North Africa, but not Ethiopia. Not, yeah, yeah. Um, been to Tunisia before, not not Ethiopia. So yeah. landed in the country six seven o'clock in the morning, sort of like delirious, having not really slept properly on a on a plane, and um, and then I was told, yeah, it's going to get picked up. Yeah. So I sort of get there it's an hour later I've got my bag and I'm waiting it's like an hour gone by and I'm trying to now get on my phone trying to work out like <laughs> currency conversions in Burr yeah trying to, really to get cash out and like all these things do I need to get a taxi where am I going I know I'm in yeah. Addis Ababa but uh, Sam is uh, actually in Yugoshef at the time yeah so on a 10 hour drive a bit of context Ooh. yeah so I was in one of the well probably the most famous coffee growing region of Ethiopia at the mm-hmm. time which is 10 hours down one road from oh, wow. Addis Ababa right um it used to be a much shorter drive, but the Chinese are doing a lot of infrastructure building at the moment. And they, um, in, well, as is typical in a lot of uh, infrastructure projects, there were complications. So they'd, um, they were going to, basically there was a huge amount of deaths on this road because it was like a single track road. But it's quite common in East Africa in general that people will overtake in rows of like five. Yes. So if you come up behind and there's three cars overtaking each other, you just go round and you go around all three of them and right. you, you're good. Um, so there's a lot of head-on collisions on this road. So the Chinese had a project where they're going to widen it to a dual carriageway each way, so four total lanes. Um, so they took the top off the road, all the tarmac, and then they broadened it, uh, and then all the money dried up and they pulled out. So it's gone from a Millions four... disappeared. Yes, yeah. So it went from a four-hour journey on a nice tarmac road that was a bit dangerous to a 10-hour journey on an open oh. a dirt track, basically. Um, but no phone signal, no nothing, and like the, quite, a, quite a challenging place to... Well, it's a difficult place to operate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm at this point. I mean, Josh has got absolutely no way of getting in contact with me because I'm completely without without Signal. service. As are the local SIM cards that we've got. So oh, there's no. no um, so I've got the phone. I've got the phone, and I can hear, "Hi, this is Sam from Clifton Coffee." Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not leaving you voicemail because yeah. you're not going to get it. Like, who who am I getting picked up by? So I get this broken WhatsApp call from um, I think it was from Teddy yeah. to say that someone. Um, was meant to be there to pick me up at 7 a.m. It's now 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, that's that's not happened. I know we're on Africa time, but something is something's going wrong. Yeah. Anyway, lo and behold, we finally get I get picked up, get taken to the hotel, uh, sort of managed to just like wash my face, brush my teeth, and and I had a, a message to say that I'd be taken uh, to um, BNT's cupping lab um, in Addis to just. Uh, taste what you guys had sort of mm-hmm. been down to see in Yoga Chef um, before then attending um, a graduation party and a welcoming party um, at like one o'clock that afternoon. So um, I go to the hotel. <laughs> they hadn't checked me in, in a room either, so that was another... Yeah, there was no room there. Uh, yeah. um, anyway, we, we go, we cup some coffee. It gets me really excited. Uh, I was really excited to hear what Sam had to say coming back from Yoga Chef, and we were meant to then head on to Jimmer. Um, which is another region that grows there as well. And uh, still can get hold of you. We finally get to the point where, right, we go to, to, to Teddy's um, house um, and I get there and uh, I realize that I'm like the only white person there, which is completely yeah. fine. Culturally, I'm sort of getting, trying to get into the mix a bit in Africa. Right. Um, like, you know, talking about anything, <laughs> anything, yeah. predominantly coffee. Yeah. More and more people arrive, and I start to see this is a bit of a this is a bit of a celebration here. This isn't just your average get together on a Saturday afternoon. Mm. So uh, I was like, okay, I've read a bit about how to be cult- culturally appropriate and polite, and uh, I'm just going to get fully stuck in. Yeah. So and what um, time is it now? Uh, like one midday. Like one midday. Yeah. 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 Uh, still like, oh, what time is Sam and the rest of the guys arriving at this party? Like, oh, they'll be here by three. 
Yeah. Oh, great, an hour and a half. I can do a bit. Of, I'm okay with small talk. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. And uh, yeah, time starts going on and on. Next thing you know, they bring this goat um, out, uh, like into the court area, yard area that we were, right. and um, sort of parade around a little bit, and then it heads back out the backyard, and we're sort of instructed to sit at a table. I'm asked, would I like a drink? Uh, the options were beer or uh, whiskey and sparkling water. Yeah, which is very popular. That's a that's a big a big drink. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I asked for a beer. I got served a whiskey as well. I didn't ask. I was just polite. Whiskey chaser. Just yeah. Thank you very much. Um, and then, well, the next thing you know is that this goat is just being killed. Oh. And uh, they bring out a tray of raw meat uh, in front of me with some chili sauce. And it's presented to me. A delicacy. Yeah. I've done a little bit of reading. And this was like, yeah, a bit of a, yeah. uh, like a, an honorable act, right? And well, it, it wasn't on your behalf, was it? Uh, well, it was for, for this party. party. Ah, okay. um, but you weren't personally responsible for the assassination of that goat. Absolutely not. Okay. Um, <laughs> 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 I was a vegetarian for 16 years growing up as well. Now, so this is uh, yeah, it was a bit of a cultural shock, I yeah. guess. Uh, to which point they they presented it to me and said, "This is this is for you." I'd read this is quite <laughs> an honourable thing to to be presented with, and uh, I was instructed just to, to eat it. Yeah. I had no idea about the meat itself. I wasn't sure what the heck was going on. Um, I knew that I had some probiotics in my back, <laughs> so I just put my hand in, shoveled five of them in my mouth, washed it down. Uh, probiotics. Oh, oh, yeah. the pills. Yeah, because yeah, I didn't want to. I just arrived in the country. I'm not yeah. going to like destroy my tummy yeah, with yeah. some meat. That was probiotics, Dyrolite, and Imodium. That's what you that's need. That's, the three. that's your care yeah. package. Yeah. You got yeah. them. You're going to be all right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then I'm like, well, I've got no water here, so I'm washing down these probiotics with a beer and whiskey, whiskey. chaser, yeah. and just get stuck into this raw goat, uh, hoping that Sam would arrive. Uh, as soon as possible. So this, this is point. like what one, one yeah. half one. And you so guys... you're continuing. So at this point, we're probably well seven hours away from where Josh oh, is. Wow. So the um, and none of us are contactable and all of that. So the uh, so I just had to entertain, uh, I guess the the rest of the uh, the guests that we were there with um, mm-hmm. for the next sort of seven hours while trying not to be laced with beer and uh, whiskey which you didn't water. manage very well oh, after no, was, night flight I, yeah, yeah it was a yeah. it was a cultural uh, yeah eye opener I must yeah. say that much yeah. so we get to the point where Sam is comes back here I was thinking it's about like half nine ten o'clock yeah the best is when I get about an hour from Addis and the phone signal kicks in and it's got <laughs> it's like, like five hundred <laughs> texts from Josh <laughs> going bro are you okay what's going on I'm like this road Everyone, is dangerous yeah. Like, Everyone this, keeps telling me you're going to be here in half an hour, yeah. like for an hour and a half, and three hours, four hours. Yeah. yeah. So we we arrive. Uh, well, Sam arrives back. We sort of rendezvous, find out what what's been going on in mm. Yoga Chef. I wasn't sure if I was going to actually be able to get down there at that point, um, and we were due to head on to Jimmer afterwards. Long story short, there'd been a lot of social unrest. There'd been some. Um, controversial statements and marketing that had been published by... It was by about coffee, we can talk about it. It was about coffee, yeah, it was so about the, Ethiopian Airlines. So it was um, Abiy Ahmed, who's, who's recently got the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, we can talk a little bit about that as well, if you want. <laughs> uh, but Haile Mariam Dezelen, who was the previous Prime Minister, we actually had the, the pleasure to sit down with him for a couple of hours. It was um, the most surreal trip, actually. Yeah, it was a bit mental. Um, yeah. But he'd recently stepped down, I think it was in the spring of last year. Um, basically, he'd been working for a long time on a peace deal with Eritrea, um, but Ethiopia, like a lot of East African countries, is broken up by various ethnic groups that are all kind of just lumped together as under one kingdom. Um, and the largest, the majority ethnic group in Ethiopia is Oromo. Um, and basically, Haile Mariam Dezelen didn't think he could get the peace deal through because he's not Oromo. So he stepped down, 
Abi Ahmed stepped up, who is a Romo, and then said, oh, I've, I've brokered this fantastic peace deal with Eritrea, and everyone went, oh, fantastic, and he got a majority because he's the right ethnic group. Right? Um, so Abi Ahmed is from Aromia and Ethiopian Airlines, and right maybe like a week before we'd left, or around the time we were yeah. there, um, had done a big press release saying uh, with pictures of Abi Ahmed saying, come and visit Aromia, the home of coffee, and our prime minister. And uh, everyone in Kaffa was very upset about it. Ah, because they claimed it was the home. Because, yeah. because coffee's from Kaffa. So then all the people from Kaffa went into Aromia and started burning cars. Oh, and gosh. Things. Basically, so it was... It, it yeah. was unsafe. So we, the night before, you met with the police commissioner yeah. uh, with, with Phil, and they'd sort of said that it, it pretty much wasn't safe to, to go no, across the There was the some uh, German buyers were blockaded inside a hotel and then airlifted from a helicopter from the hotel roof. Yeah, uh, it's like the, yeah. Riots in Ethiopia are... Commonplace. They're more common than they would be elsewhere, and you have to take them seriously. But yeah, like the, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, but, so the conclusion of this tale about what this is a very long story. Ethiopian yeah. coffee project, right? And this is where we've ended up: is that we want everywhere that we try to buy coffee from, we want to invest back, like I said, into the people that are growing amazing coffee. Mm. We travelled down to Yugoshef, um and visited the town of Gadeb, and um, particularly a washing station that BNT had just mm. um, invested in called Worker Worry. Yeah. Um, while we were there, there was loads of development work in regards to the building raised beds for drying coffee. And we sort of started to look around and we could see there were, there were, there were quite a lot of children in and around this washing station. We chatted to BNT, we chatted to, uh, to Phil and the Olam guys, and we knew they were a very reputable supplier, totally, totally against child labor. Mm. So we sort of began to ask a few more questions. Why, why is it working in the middle of the week? Why are these children here? And the fundamental answer was that there just wasn't anything for them. There wasn't a school. Uh, Gadeb doesn't have um, uh, running water. It doesn't have a, um, a hardwired electric supply. The, the whole town's on generators. And, mm -hmm. and there's no school for the children. Uh, so coffee is really the only means by which they could get some sort of education or provide any value and income for their, for their family. And it's often not like... Uh so a bit of like form, a bit of background. The, the primary school education in Ethiopia is like sub fifty percent completion mm -hmm. rate. Com so yeah. let alone secondary or anything further than that. So wow. and it's all about access. Like wow. the um, and that there's a load of reasons for that. Some of them are cultural, some of them are economic. And mm -hmm. There's a lot of a lot of pieces to the puzzle. But often it's not um, formal child labour as such. It's just that like the kids have nowhere to go. Yeah. yeah so what can they, we do to provide? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I, mean, I showed you some pictures earlier, Bryn, I think. If, to, kids at the, at the washing stations collecting coffee from underneath the beds. Yes. Yep. And it's kind of like, look, we're, you've got an 11-year-old, they're not in education, they come with their dad to the washing station, he's working like washing coffee or working the pulpers, and they're like wandering around picking up coffee that's fallen through the, the slats in the drying tables. Yes. Uh, and then at the end of the day, he sells it back to the washing station and he makes a few burr. And it's, I mean, it's not a... It's probably far more benign, to be honest, than a lot of the kind of child labour that you might have come across in, yes. in other areas that you've mm -hmm. worked in. But it's, it's out... We would prefer the kids to be elsewhere. Yes, yeah, yeah, education is the priority. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this for us became quite obvious, uh, kind of uh, evident, really, I guess, yeah. and obvious that um, these children want education. Yes. They're craving knowledge. Mm. Um, everywhere we were asked to, you know, could we get a pen or something to write with for these children? It was never, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, so we, we spoke to, to BNT and we were like, well, could we, could we raise some sort of premium fund that mm. could go or contribute towards the development of, of Gadeb um, as the town and, and also particularly for the farmers at the washing station? Mm. There's 
over a probably 750 local uh, smallholders providing coffee to the Washington station and over probably a thousand children in the area. Yeah, upwards is upwards of a thousand kids. So yeah. we, they seemed really excited about that. They'd done some similar work uh, with actually a Starbucks premium reserve mm -hmm. program in the past. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been able to, to source a delicious coffee from this uh, from this Washington station at Worker and, uh, and through it put a premium um, fund on the coffee, um, which is at the moment creating uh, a fund so that we can help build 10 classrooms um, in the region, in the town, uh, for the children to, uh, to be able to get Sakaro Cabello, which is like the, it's the cluster of, mm -hmm. of dwellings that are in the same region as the washing station. Yeah. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff in that area, but that's the particular region. But maybe we could talk a bit about the Clifton Premium and give yeah, a bit of background. Yeah, well, it's that. the natural, I yeah. guess, now, isn't it? Yeah. Well, actually, I do want to hear about that. Go on. But I, I'm still trying to hear this through the ears of a novice. Take me in the simplest steps possible, um, yeah, an idiot's guide to some sure. extent, the, the coffee process. So you mentioned drying beds, you mentioned yeah. washing stations. <laughs> station. Some of these things are going to be a new, t you know, sort of new terminology yeah. for, for those yeah. that are unaware of how this crop goes from on, mm. a, on a tree to yeah. a cup. Should I jump in on that? Yeah, jump in. Yeah. 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 Um, so every, the first thing to understand is that every country is different. Uh, within countries, there's a million different structures. A big part of the reason why I have a job is because the path from plant to your cup is extremely complicated yes. and very varied, right? So my job is to derive value and give value back, like kind of connect up those ends of the chain mm. and make it something that we can work with in a, in a way that actually is logical and makes sense. Yes. Right? So that's my first caveat. Um, there's two main, so coffee's a fruit. Inside the fruit is two seeds, right? That's the green coffee product, is those seeds, and then how you get everything else off uh, has, number one, a huge impact on the flavor, but also it varies from supply chain to supply chain. Mm. There's probably like three basic um, kind of catch-alls that we could talk about. So you've got the farmer, large farmer. Um, Pedro's in Brazil. He's got 900 hectares. It's mechanized. He has a very high level of development. He's farming cherries. He's picking them mechanically. Um, and he's either drying the cherry and then putting that through a dry hollow that takes everything off in one big husk, right? That's called a natural coffee. Uh, or he's producing what's called a pulp natural. So he's just pulping the fruit. You imagine like two discs that kind of come close together. You put the fruit through and it squeezes it. And if they're ripe, the seeds pop out, right? That discharges all the seeds. He dries those and then he dry holes those, right? So Pedro is very successful. He has... Mm. Uh, he has dry hullers and probably, yeah, he has a, a wet huller, drying tables or patios or mechanical dryers, a dry huller, and he's probably bagging the coffee and exporting it himself as well, um, or through a union because he's a big, successful farmer. Is that the doTERRA? Uh, so that would be a similar... is a bit different um, because it's a, a very quality-focused Brazilian farm, so they have an incredibly intense... They basically sort their cherry. They farm... They pick mechanically with mechanical pickers that they built themselves that are much more sensitive, it's patented, they sell them to other people. But they're much more sensitive and much more selective than traditional mechanical pickings, so the quality's higher. And then they use like a system of pressure channels to sort into seven different qualities and then they re-blend back into different... Pro but I mentioned that because we sell... Yes, yeah. yes. So I would say <laughs> Deterra would, re would represent the pinnacle of what's possible to achieve with that style of system. Okay. Yeah. Like ecologically, quality-wise, everything, they're like the best. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but that would be that, that kind of supply chain. Then you have someone in Colombia, um, Juan Carlos. He's got four hectares instead of 900 or 1,000. And that's quite a big farm in Colombia, it's four hectares. Yeah. Um, so he's picking cherry, he's hand-picking everything, and then he's pulping it on maybe like a little hand pulper. 
and drying the parchment. Right, so parchment is like the step in between cherry and green coffee. Okay. And the pulper would be just splitting the the beans out yeah, from yeah, just, the cherry. Just, yeah, just pulping the fruit and yep. getting the seeds out, right? Yep. He's drying that and he's selling parchment, right, which is that intermediary thing. So he's going to bag all that up. He's not going to dry hull it to green coffee. He's just got fruit to parchment, which is the next step. And he's selling that to a co-op or to a dry mill or whatever. And then they're The next stage is for them exactly. to then exactly. remove the parchment. So, yeah. so that's going through like a, CP, a central processing unit, a CPU, uh, that's aggregating all of these small farmers, processing that down and then exporting green coffee. Right. So that's like the next step in terms of complexity. Yeah. You've got one guy doing it all himself. You've got someone who's growing the cherry and then pulping it and then selling the parchment yeah. to someone who's then processing that and exporting. Right? And when you use the term green coffee... Yeah. Pre-roasted coffee, raw coffee, which yeah. it normally has a color, sort of a greenier, yeah. greener color. Yeah, fresh, fresh green coffee has a greeny, greenish or greenish blue kind of color. Yeah. But when it's roasted, it obviously it takes turns on brown. Yeah, sort yeah. of caramel, chocolatey. Yeah, brown. exactly. Mm. So then the last kind of example, and these are all simplifications, and every variant of ev- everything has a different. But the last one would be a washing station model. Um, so this is what we're talking about in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. It's typical for East Africa. Um, uh, but you do see it in other places as well, where basically farmers are selling fresh red cherry to a central processing unit. Um, So rather than uh, buying parchment or pulping at the farms or anything like that, the farmers all live generally in an area around a central processing unit, and they're rocking up on that day with maybe like 400 grams of fresh coffee, fresh cherry. This is what I was talking about with Yemen earlier as well. They're rocking up with like 400 grams that they picked that morning, and they're selling it in cash. And then the guy who owns the washing station is pulping the coffee, is fermenting it, is drying it, anything else that needs to be done in the quality step. So then normally what would happen is someone's buying coffee, they'll buy cherry, they'll pay premiums according to the quality, basically how red the cherry is that's been bought and a percentage of overripes and underripes because you want ripe fruit for good quality coffee. Um, Those farmers are getting paid in cash that day. They may, if they're good, like BNT, they'll Mm -hmm. get like worker worry. They pay quite a heavy second second harvest premium, like post-harvest premium, Mm. um, basically returning some of the profits they've got from quality back. Um, But then that coffee is then processed normally down to parchment um, which again is that intermediary step that Juan Carlos was doing on his own. Celestial, the owner of the washing station, is doing that. And then he's drying it out. And then he's going to sell that on to a, an exporter or send it up the chain to a dry mill. Yeah. Who are then, they're then going to dry mill that and then market it and sell it. So this is what Simple. I mean. Yeah, easy, easy. <laughs> so, but with BNT in Ethiopia, for example, which is our partner on the Worker Worry, mm-hmm. it is really straightforward because they own the washing stations and they own the dry mill and they're the exporter. Okay. So they have kind of quite an integrated supply chain. Yeah, that's a linear model. Exactly, yeah, which, um, which makes it very easy to be transparent. It yes. makes it very easy for us to understand what the farmer's getting paid. It makes it very, like, you can go in, I can ask them what was the the burr cherry price, like the daily cherry price for the days when these lots were selected. They have it all recorded and tell us what everyone got paid. And then premium work becomes much easier because you know where all the money's going. So I want to bounce straight from that onto another subject being, you know, we talked about Ethiopia in some detail, but some of the other coffees we've supplied via you guys and your your network across the world have come from other even more, um, I use the term fragile states, Mm -hmm. uh, such as... Democratic Republic of Congo or Burundi there is a movement that you check your label when you buy a piece of clothing or your product and if it says it comes from a country 
I don't know, so like Pakistan or China or Taiwan. There's a, oh, actually, I'm not confident that the conditions in which this product yeah. uh, was, was made is completely free of um, exploitation or slavery or some sort of labor abuse. So I'll just buy products that are made in Australia or in the UK <laughs> or in Spain with the expectation that by not buying from there, I'm not... The other view is, no, we need to trade with mm-hmm. these countries. We just need to make sure that we're doing due diligence yep. we're bringing up that standard and I'm imagining you guys are of the second very much so, yeah. very much so I guess like the, the, the old school second wave trend however you want to describe it within coffee would have all been about certs so do you have fair trade coffee right. do you have rainforest alliance coffee right. do you have triple cert coffee Can you, and trying to, to have these generic certifications which, which historically you know were, were premiums that were doing better than, than the commodity price of coffee was doing yeah um, still are I mean yeah they're not true yeah still some frightening facts about how much coffee certified as fair trade is sold as fair trade but that's for another day but what I think what is exciting what did you just say <laughs> so only what Josh is referencing there is that of so coffee is of all the coffee that's certified as fair trade yes. only 30% of it is successfully sold as fair trade so 70% of the coffee for which producer groups or co-ops have paid the premiums to become certified is not sold as certified. It's sold as conventional coffee because there's no market for it. Um, Cocoa is a much better performer, um, Mm -hmm. my understanding, because there's not that many certified co-ops in cocoa, so the the demand is more equal. Uh, Cotton is really bad, as is tea. Whereas then the difference for for us was then with with direct trade. And uh, this is arguably a new buzzword in coffee. Uh, We're trying to try and, you know, we are trying to educate our customers through that. And maybe this will help with the podcast as well, is that we work on a a direct trade basis. That doesn't always mean that you're paying more, but we are working on the specialty market. But I can can safely say that last year on average, we paid 156% above fair trade price for the coffee. 156% above. Above the fair trade, mm-hmm. the fair trade minimum. Yeah. So, so explain to me because I think this is really key, and I try and educate people even with my very average knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. Fair trade, like we've discussed, is a certification. Right? Yeah, it's a premium. A- and the principle, and please do jump in and interrupt me if you disagree, is great. Yeah. In that we're yeah. gonna we re- we recognise that any other commodity, be it gold or be it oil. It, there's a market for it, and you know, the coffee is exact, traded in exactly the same way, and that there's volatility in that market, so the mm-hmm. price goes up and down. And the you know, fair trade, what came back in the 80s, yeah. as mm-hmm. a means of saying, well, actually, we need to put a bottom line, and and that's fair trade minimum, right? We're going to pay what is it, a dollar twenty something? Dollar forty. Dollar forty. Dollar forty plus a twenty cent premium. Plus the premium, mm-hmm. and and it will never go below that if it's fair trade. Yep. The downside, and this is why I want your input, but the, the, which is a great model. One of the downsides, at least, is it costs that farm or the farm or that person to have that certification. There's a cost involved. They have in to that. contribute, yes. The co ops, yeah. yeah. Because it, I mean, it needs to be audited. They need to come and they need to see that the standards. It's not just uh, you know, the price of the coffee, it's obviously certain conditions, way the staff are, are paid, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So to invite that, that costs money. And sometimes the cost of being a certified fair trade coffee exporter or seller outweighs the increased cost that they'll get for their product in the first place am i right yeah to a certain extent i think that you'd also see um i think if there's a few criticisms we can make of fair trade that are fair i would say that the first one would be market value so obviously what we we're talking about before with the percentages of coffee that are leveraged as fair trade um 
often so fair trade works with cooperatives right so you, you can't really as a single farmer you can't go and get certified as fair trade it's at the co-op level um, and that mean that has a whole other set of problems associated with it because in most coffee producing countries co-ops are, are for-profit businesses which a lot of people don't realize so it's only to my knowledge it's mostly just brazil where they're legislated as non-profit entities most places a co-op is a business right and they're making money for the co-op which has directors it's not like a a non-profit entity yeah um but the other and then often what you'll see is that they'll only manage to sell us a certain amount of their coffee as fair trade so maybe the prices that they pay to their farmer members will be averaged out so although you've sold some coffee at significantly higher prices, actually what everyone else gets is maybe like one cent extra a pound right. because it's averaged over the whole contribution of the co-op. That's the way a lot of people run it. Um, there's a whole other load of issues. I mean, one of the ones that is quite key in my mind and ties back to your original question is um, a lot of the partners that we've been working with in DRC, for example, or certainly Yemen, um, can't get certified as fair trade because fair trade won't send auditors. Right, because it's too so dangerous. It's too dangerous, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, so what you have is something that's designed to help people who are most exposed, and the people who are most exposed aren't able to be helped okay. by it. Yeah. And then you have the question, if only if only a certain percentage... I mean, I don't want to be too critical of fair trade. No, 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 no. Yeah, I've seen a huge amount of positive impact, yes. right? Um, like, firsthand. But yes. I would say if only 30% of the certified coffee is sold as certified, the people who are able to leverage it well are normally very organised operations who would be doing well regardless. Yeah. And they've seen it as a commercial opportunity and they're leveraging that value into the market. Yeah. Yeah. The people who aren't are the people who are less organized, who maybe aren't in a position to to like hire international marketing managers and like find trade partners for their coffee mm. that effectively. And they're the people who are who the certification is supposed to be helping the most. Yeah, I guess it, this leads us then on to, to what... Uh, I guess has been a bit of a brainchild of, of, of Sam's. I'm not going to take too much credit from it at all, really. But the Clifton Premium, mm -hmm. um, which is something that we've tried to sort of instigate and strike up with all the partners that we buy. So on the specialty market, on a direct trade basis, we want mm -hmm. to invest back into the people that are most important. They are the producers. We want to add value to them so they can uh, invest in whatever they need mm -hmm. from a sustainability perspective um, to make sure that we all get great coffee year on year. Yeah. So the idea basically is... Um and this kind of ties back to the direct trade thing. So on average, the fair trade is really good at doing what it's supposed to do in the instances that it manages to achieve its aims, i.e. the certified coffee is sold as fair trade. Um, there's a whole other economics question that I won't get into, which is uh, the question for another day where I'll get my, uh, my blackboard out and talk about supply and demand curves and intervention pricing and all that fun stuff because my view is it's not a long-term alternative solution. Um, but ultimately, because of the qualities that we're working in, we're paying much higher than the fair trade minimums. Right, so um, the fair trade minimum is a dollar forty. As Josh said last year, we we're paying upwards of one hundred and fifty percent higher than that as a mean average. So there's not a huge amount of value in that for us. And to to sell a fair trade product for us carries a cost. Yeah. Um, so we have to pay as a roaster as well to put that sticker on the bag, yeah. and that pays a lot of admin fees in the yeah. UK and all that sort of thing. Uh, but we're kind of like, why we're we already paying way beyond that? What's the point? Yeah. Right. But there are a lot of really good things about fair trade, and one of those is the premium structures. So fair trade has a social premium. And that social premium is put back into project work or development and all those sorts of things. And I think that there's a, a huge benefit in building infrastructure that can benefit the wider community facilitated with specific purchases, right? So Ethiopia is a good example. We're investing in this school. Yeah. Uh, that serves everybody in that region, not just the specific farmers whose coffee we've bought. Yes. Um, and I think that there's something very positive about that, that 
it moves things into a broader development space away from specific commercial value to us. Yes. And I thought that was very positive. So what we have is the Clifton Premium. Um, it's basically, it's an optional premium that's available to our partners at Origin. So it's not me going to places and saying, I want you to do this. Yes. Because I have no idea what people in, in Nicaragua need. Yes. And certainly not better than they do. Yes. Right. Um, so our partners at Origin are able to pitch towards a project. Um, there's a few KPIs and things that they need to satisfy right, right. for us to know that the money will be used as it should yes. be. Um, the project needs to fill one of the three pillars of sustainable uh, sustainable trade, so economic, environmental, or social. Um, ideally, the best projects will cover multiple branches, um, but it needs to be geared at least towards one of those. Yeah. Um, and then clear, definable objectives that can be measured and fed back. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah nothing wishy-washy. I need yes. to know if you yeah. say we want to do farmer training, I need to know how many farmers, I need yeah. to know over what time scale, and I need documentation of implementation. Yeah. And that would be that would be reviewed for sort of ratification purposes, so we can't... That money's not going to end up in the big bosses. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A swimming pool yeah. in his estate. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And that... Um, yeah, so we're quite stringent with our terms on it, and but what that basically leads to is quite a, a good allocation of funds, which we're quite proud of. So we've, yeah. we've had a huge amount of of success with that. Actually, it was trialled last year, um, and I mean we can touch on a few bits and bobs. But <laughs> my my personal favourite um, project that we're not supposed to have favourites, but yeah, the, give me an example. Um, so we work with. I'm actually going on Wednesday next, next week, week, so yeah. it's a good a good time. But we work with an indigenous community in Colombia for most of our. Um, is this the Yerwa? Yes, yeah. Amazing. So the Yerwa are yes, yes. Yeah, so yeah. you guys have had this coffee, right? Yeah. So um, the Yerwa are a subset of the Awaka community, which is um, they're one of the original peoples that were in Colombia before the Spanish and like came and settled, right? So they're indigenous communities. Yes. Um, so we work with uh, an indigenous rights organization in the north. Um, that it's basically it's a non-profit indigenous rights group that uses coffee and cocoa exports to raise funds and awareness for the, the struggles of the indigenous people in the Sierra Nevada, the Santa Marta mountains. Right. Uh, so last year, and this is the coffee that you were serving, so this yes, is great yeah. to talk about. And yeah, super high. We actually just took it offline today. Oh, well, there we go. Well, um, but it, no, next season, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah well, I'm, out, I'm out there. I'm out there on Wednesday okay. to go. When is the next season for that? Well, the coffee. So we're this year we're buying five containers, um, which is quite a considerable amount of coffee. Yeah. I mean, it's about for ease of use, it's about twenty tons per container. Um, so you're talking best part of hundred we'll, tons. Well, I say we involving Clifton. Would that be the biggest customer for for that uh, coffee? No. So they have. Um, so as a group, the exporter does about 70 containers a year, uh, but the vast majority of that goes to the States and to Australia, yeah. and most of it to large commercial trade houses who will then, so they might buy 20 boxes of like generic Sierra Nevada organics at market rate um, with no long-term investment. They're just buying it because they need organic coffee from Colombia. Okay. Um, and then they'll flip it on to roasters all over the place. Yeah. But, yeah. but we are a very significant direct partner of those and certainly the largest in Europe. Great. Um, so... Uh, project, yeah. So, <laughs> Where so, are we? Yes, so uh, last year we worked on a development project with the Yawa. Um, basically, we, it was this this premium structure that we've been talking about, the Clifton yep. Premium. Um, so we worked with the FNC, uh, which is the like National Coffee Federation uh, in Colombia. It's a branch of the Colombian government that oversees all things coffee, coffee market. Really so like the 
all things sustainability, all things economic, they set all the internal prices, they do all the field trials for new varieties, everything. It's the, the government body for coffee. Uh, so we work with the FNC and with Cafe Anne, which is this indigenous rights group that we work with, uh, on a development program for the Yerba women. Yeah. So there's a subset of the, of the community. Um, I think it's 91 off the top 90, of my head. Yeah. yeah. So I don't have my notes with me, so please forgive me if I've, if I've got that off by one or two. We'll forgive you. Um, so to my knowledge, to my off the top of my head, 91 indigenous uh, ladies of the Yerba community. They each got two hectares of coffee planted, um, which is significant. I mean, that's... Average farm size in Ethiopia is, is about half to 0.7 of a hectare. So in Colombia, two hectares is a good size. Yeah. Um, so two hectares of coffee planted each, plus 150 plantain shade trees each, and then which obviously is a food source as well, and then uh, native bean vegetation for like nitrogen fixing in the soil and all these sorts of things, which again is another food source. So that project, which is now reaching its end, um, but obviously you plant the coffee, but then you have a five-year cycle before it's fully fruiting. Yeah. Um, but at that point, at current market rate, that's going to be worth about $650,000 a year to the community in exports. Yeah. Um, average income is sub $300 a year yeah. per person. So we're talking a huge, a huge capital increase. Yeah. So our work is helping them plant those trees? Oh, yes, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. yeah. So we've specifically contributed to... Because it's a big project with multiple yeah. partners and funding coming from different places. Right. Um, but we specifically have contributed to planting of the trees, farmer training programs, and pruning, yeah. which is a, a big thing for productivity. Yeah. With all of that going on, so we talked you know, very briefly on the Colombian project, a little bit more in detail yeah. in the Ethiopia, this Clifton premium model. No. Where's the profit? Is there profit left over at the at the end of the day? Can we can we afford to do this and well, still? Well, that's the third pillar. That's economic, right? So, environmental, social, and economic sustainability. All three of those have to be there. It doesn't work. So, yeah. the if we price ourselves out of the of the market and we can't like we can't be competitive, our coffee's too expensive. Yeah. No one wants to buy it. Yeah. Uh, then we can't come back next year. The whole year. thing collapses. It's not yeah. sustainable. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. I had a conversation with someone the other day. Um, Actually, a lawyer that's probably going to come on the podcast. I won't mention her now. Just in no case spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she said, you know, actually, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I get a salary from this. But that salary enables me to represent people pro bono. And mm -hmm. the non-profit model is difficult. So we uh, at Bluebird, we're not, I, forgive me if it, if it gives the impression we're a non-profit. Uh, and it, I might still have that on our, you know, <laughs> somewhere in our literature. Yeah. But we are a for profit. The difference is we give our profit away. Yeah. But we want to make a profit, and it's with so that, that profit that we can give it exactly. away. We can use that yep. money. And, and, and the, there's some thinking, oh, having a pro profit, you can't have both, right? In the yeah. most simplistic black and white binary sense, oh, these guys are making all the money. And we, to some extent, we sort of demonize the hugely successful organization, certainly in the coffee industry, yes. like the big five. Uh, and because they're making so much money, it, uh, but you know, we need, you, you, like you say, it's, a, it's an important pillar of business. Of not, yes. This is not sustainable. Yeah, I would say in terms of the, um, it would be good to break it down slightly. I'll try and be really brief. Cause and it's and if you can say whether you think, without being unfair, whether you think this model is um, you know, more, more appropriate, more culturally sensitive, more compassionate in its very makeup than the, the sort of operations that take place by the big guys who own the lot, yeah. right? Yeah. They own every element of that supply chain. Yeah, yeah. I would say that the um, that's another huge question. <laughs> it's a big issue. We can get yeah, into, we can get into that. Big questions today, Brent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're already like yeah. maxed up on time. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of um, basic 
how we like how are we lean enough in our supply chain that yeah. we're able to fund these projects and still be competitive with the next guy? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the basic question to economic sustainability of these project work. Um, that all has to do with the style of trading and importing that you're doing. Right. So basic supply chain structure. You have, and we'll forget about all the processing and everything. We've got coffee FOB, means free on board. So that's coffee on a container at a port at origin, maybe Santos port in Brazil. Yeah. And that's on the container on the ship, right? That's free on board. Okay. So you have coffee from that point. Someone has to buy it. They have to bring it into the UK, and then they have to deliver it into a warehouse and roast it. Yeah. So, so a couple more links in the chain. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's even before we get. There's a whole load of stuff that happens after it leaves us as well, before it becomes a beverage, obviously, because <laughs> it has to go to cafes and they have right. to do all these right, things. Right. Um, but the so ultimately, there's two main ways of doing that. The first one is spot. So coffee that's available on the spot means I can buy it today and have it in my roaster. So there's loads of importers in the UK, some that do a great job, some that do a mixed job, and some that are sketchy. Um, I, I will name absolutely no names. So, yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, so I can ring up multiple people I know. Sorry, I can't read that. You just read it down on a piece of paper. <laughs> Don't try and catch me up, Rude. So I can ring up plenty of people that I know and say, hello, mate, how's it going? Um, I need four tonnes of a really nice Guatemalan coffee. What have you got? Yeah. And I say, oh, I've got this brilliant coffee. It's from this farm and this is the farmer. And if they're really good, they'll say this is what they got paid all the way through and it's super ethical. It doesn't mean it's, doesn't mean it's not been traded ethically. It's just available in a warehouse in the UK and I can buy it off them and have it delivered. Is that how most of it's done? That is a so at our end of the industry and specialty, yes. Especially yes. Yes. And it's it's arguably to a certain extent how, how we used to operate before we had means yeah, to, yeah, to, to yeah. grow into it's, what we do it's now. A, it's a scale issue, right? So you're you're when you ship a container, you're shipping twenty tons of coffee, yes. give or give yes. or take, yes. right? And it can be economical. You can ship half of that, but it increases your costs yeah. per kilo, yeah. right? And then you also need to have enough expertise within your company that you're happy to buy a container from someone in Guatemala, which yeah. is you need to, there's a skill set that comes with that. Right. So that's spot coffee. And when a, when a trader or an importer brings in a container, they might bring in five different lots of coffee from Rwanda, and they're betting basically on the fact that they're going to be able to sell that coffee for more they bought it for. So yeah. there's a huge amount of risk involved in that for yeah. them. And the margins in green coffee trading are tiny, so they have to have pretty hefty markups. In order, I mean, the, a markup of, say, a really nice Rwandan coffee they might buy it for like three dollars fifty a pound, something like that. And they're going to sell it to me for like five fifty a pound, right? Yeah. And it sounds extortionate because all they're doing is bringing it in, but they're offsetting the losses of the other half of the container. Yeah. That's all it is. And if it, coffee has a, a degradation attached to it, so it doesn't stay fresh forever, so it's time sensitive. Yeah. So I need to sell the coffee when it's fresh, and it needs to move through. And if I can't sell it when it's fresh, I'm going to start losing money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's spot coffee, right? Huge amount of risk, high margins for the trader for very good reason. But that means financial pressure at my end and financial pressure at the exporter's end, right? Yeah. Then there's back-to-back trading. So what we do with our direct stuff is back-to-back. So I fix price with an exporter or a farmer or whoever it is, the aggregator at origin. I say, hola, Ricardo, como estas? And we select a price we're happy with. We settle on something we think is fair. And then I ring up an import company and I say, I'm paying Ricardo $3.50 a pound for this coffee. Can you bring it in for me? The, like, the container is going to be available at Shuska Chapa Cooperative. That's an example of people we work with. FOT means we're going to pick it up on the truck, sort it out. And then they basically provide a, a trade finance line. They provide logistic services and they bring all the coffee in. Yeah. So they have a big credit line because they trade like $100 million worth of coffee, right? So their finance is much cheaper than mine. 
they are a major, they might do 2,000 containers a year. So they're a major shipping customer. So they've got really good shipping rates. They know what they're doing. They're really quick and easy, but they're adopting no risk because I've bought all the coffee right. from the time, like from, I've bought all the coffee by the time it gets on the ship. Yeah. So their margin goes from $2 to 10 cents. And then suddenly we're way leaner and we can afford to, it's a saving it for us as well. Yeah. We can pay the farmers a bit more and we can do project funds and still come in the same as people who are buying differently. And afford to go and visit, and yeah. meet, meet these people face to face, build long lasting relationships. We don't yeah. want to just buy coffee and say, sign RS, see you later. Or maybe, yeah. maybe next year if your coffee is good enough, yeah. which I, it's the truth that happens on, on the spot market a lot. Yeah. Um, we want to build long lasting relationships. That started with our E1 project, uh, who Sam just sort of related to there, Ricardo yeah. at Cuscachapa, um, through to now all the extra and the other countries that we're working in. We want to see yeah. people, we want to meet them, we want to work with them. Um, and, and just get better coffee. I think you've both been extremely fair, actually, in the way you've described the industry. But and I don't want to focus on the negatives, but you know, I hate injustice. I hate where people yeah. exploit and take advantage. And I know that exists in this industry. Yeah. In the most simple terms, and maybe even translated for someone that's just a customer that likes buying coffee. What should we be looking to avoid? What is the model that leaves the person at the end, the farmer, the per- who's going out seven days a week to pick the coffee off the crop, that ends up with five cents worth of money from a £2.40 coffee that we buy in a specialty coffee? You know, where's all that margin disappeared to? And I love what we're doing. I love what you're doing. I love how we've partnered. And, I, and this longer-term relationships, let's get to know the people and the culture, see what they need, see how yeah. we can incentivize and support them and still be competitive. I can't, there's no panacea to these issues, but I can't see at the moment a better way of doing it. What's the, before we end on a positive, <laughs> yeah. what's the worst way of this being done? What's where it's like, actually, that's the most distasteful way of getting this product into the country? You're not going to talk about cafe practices, are we? No, we're not going to talk about cafe practices. <laughs> Google that if you're interested. But because people yeah. want to know, they want to. Yeah. People need to know the distinction, you know, rather than just go, okay, Clifton and Bluebird. I think it, there are other people yeah. doing good of stuff. Course. I think yeah. the biggest thing is is just awareness, right? I think we're a lot. We want to be a lot more aware of where we are spending our money these days, particularly if a flat white is costing upwards of three pounds these yeah. days. So I think the first thing, you know, maybe this is something that's. I think it's happened since the last recession. Is people care about what they're spending there money on a little bit more they yeah. want to know a story a great sign mm. and and i think that's that's great like do your diligence if you're buying coffee in a in the same place every morning on your commute or for, so you've got it at the weekend at the same time do your research behind who who your who is that that roaster who is bringing that coffee into the country dig a little bit deeper we, we've tried to put a load of resources we don't market our business particularly very well often because we're busy mm-hmm. doing but we uh, we don't you know we there are some resources to explain how we get our coffee our story behind our, our fair trade premium our direct trade premiums and um, and particularly on the Blue Whip Bear website as well, it, it opens up a story, a, a narrative, a dialogue between crop to cup. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the first place that you can start. Without you know, people can make informed decisions. We've we've spoken a little bit well on supply chains. We've spoken about direct trade. We've spoken about specialty. Um, we've talked about premiums. I think the thing is just to look at you know wh- where is this coffee coming from? You yeah. know, is it does it say direct trade? Does it have any sort of certification? Yeah. Um, and I guess the easiest place to go to to find that is going to be Blue Bear's website. Oh! <laughs> Not your first radio. Um, <laughs> however, just to nip in with some specific example, because it sounded like you wanted specific examples of what 
bad practices look like. I'm walking right. through Sainsbury's or John Lewis or whatever, and I come to, I'm going to get some coffee, it's Christmas, I want to get some good coffee. I'm yeah. looking at two different bags. Why do I pick one over the other? So I would say, why? Um, if we talk about practices, so there's a perception in in the consumptive markets, in the general consumer, that most of the bad things that happen with coffee is like big predatory Western companies mm-hmm. exploiting people at origin. And there's a very good reason for that. And I'll give a great example of what that looks like in practice in a sec. But I would say that a huge amount of the corruption, um, human rights abuses and issues that happen in coffee happen at the origin level before it's exported. Yeah. Right? Um, and a really good ballpark for those sorts of practices is traceability so if you look at a bag and it says guatemala yes and that's the traceability so vague it. it's been yes. bought as guatemalan coffee yes sometimes i've even read a bag it said guatemala and you read the contents and it's like not guatemala <laughs> yes like yes Kenya <laughs> in vietnam yeah, yeah. yeah. so wow. so central america i call them coyotes uh, in east africa they're normally called akrabi but they're kind of aggregators wheeler dealers who yeah buy maybe cherry or coffee or however, and then flip it for a massive markup. Um, That can be, I mean, there's very good examples of them providing a great service. The classic example is like a smallholder dried coffee in Congo. There'll literally be a guy walking through the bush in Congo with an AK-47 on his back and a machete, cutting down bamboo and, and working his way through, coming across three huts, and then buying a couple of kilos of dried coffee from them in cash that day, putting it in his backpack and carrying on through the bush. Yeah. Right? And that's the supply chain. before it, like, That's how the coffee gets out. Right? Yeah. So that guy is providing a service that no one else can, but often it's predatory. Um, uh, another good example would be uh, migratory labor. So these is like the big, everyone in coffee talks about farmers. Um, very few people talk about farm workers. They're yeah. downstream in terms of value than from the farmer. So if we're in a position where farmers are like coming in way below cost of production, as they are right now in most of the world, um, prices are under the cost of production for the farmer, that financial pressure doesn't finish with them. It gets transferred down to the migratory labor and seasonal workers. Mm-hmm. Right? And they are like truly without a voice in the coffee industry. So it's very common practice, particularly in Central America, um, to load up buses, for example, of people from Honduras, drive them into El Salvador. They'll work picking coffee for a few weeks on the farm. You drive them to the next place, and that can be, that can take every form of that as you can imagine. Yeah. So it can be super benign, and everyone's getting paid great, and everyone's super really happy. Yeah. Uh, the perfect example would be what Ricardo does, which is use the local community and just pay them really well, and they're really happy mm-hmm. to work for him for a couple of months over harvest. Yes. Right? Um, but that can be all the way through to what I'm sure you're imagining with your with your background of mm-hmm. trafficking. yes yeah yeah exactly seizing passports and they'll send uh, a brother to Guatemala and a sister to Honduras and then they're split up for nine months and they work for I mean cents a day if that wow. sometimes nothing um, but basically to get their passports back yes. um, so that again is an example of what things <laughs> uh, yeah what things can be like um, mm. so and then, so one of the helpful things you said there is look at the traceability. So yeah. look at the bat. Does it give you any details about the farm in which it was produced? Yes. Or anything like that. I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. as I said, I'm like pretty sure that's not on that coffee bag. <laughs> yeah. But you also, but I mean, you can, you can dig in. So I would say a great start would be to buy from companies that are making an effort. <laughs> so Blue Bear would be great. But I mean, you can go into, you can go, I won't like name names because I know loads of people at all of the companies yes, you'll find yes, in yes. the supermarket. Um, but, I mean, you're going to go in, you're going to see a few brand names, Google them, yeah. have a look at their website, yeah. have a look yeah. at their traceability strategies, yeah. their sustainability strategies. Yeah. 
Um, and more and more these days, we see those stories associated, right? You know, you'll, you, you will be able to find information about a coffee, its story, and look at their CSR policy, their yes. ethical trading policy, and everything yep. else that will go with it as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I've answered three emails this week about our ethical trading policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, people were just emailing out of interest. All the yeah. time, all it's the time. It's a good sign, isn't it? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Particularly if we've, you know, we're a wholesale roastery as well, and we're part. Maybe we've partnered with a new coffee shop that's opened in a mm. new area that we've not really been in yet. We've seen our bag on the shelf, and the first thing we do, we get an email. Can you, you know, you're a coffee roastery. What you, are you fair trade? Is usually the first question. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, three times this week, I've had a. Can you send me your ethical trading policy? Yeah. Give me some information about your coffee. Why is it different? Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. sometimes I get. <laughs> there's been a few times, obviously, because I travel a lot with the job, um, so I'm. I was in Uganda two weeks ago. I'm going to Colombia next week. I'm going to Panama in January. I'm going to El Salvador in February and Honduras in March. So I, I get around a lot. Your wife knows that before you put on the podcast. She yeah. does know that, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we also have a young son, so it is challenging. Um, but it kind of comes with the territory. It sounds pretty awesome as well. It's, I mean, it's hugely romantic. There's, yes. um, the reality is not always that. I mean, they're kind of sitting in a... Sitting in a hospital, swelling bullet, sweating bullets, waiting on your malaria test results and all this sort of thing. It there's is, a downside. Yes, there's, there's downsides, yeah. And like the kind of drive for six hours in the Ugandan mountains and then the guy that you were supposed to meet doesn't turn up and sleeping on the floor of airports and all this. <laughs> so there's like the... No, it's not all glamour. Yeah, and it balances the very mundane day-to-day of coffee, <laughs> coffee buying, which is basically a big spreadsheet right. and forex risk management and all these sorts of things, right? Um, but... How did I get on to travel? <laughs> Why do we start talking about travel? No. I don't know. I don't know either, yeah. You lost me at Forex. I, yeah. want, I want to close this with, we, obviously you will hear this back. And, and oh I'll yeah, make, yeah, of course. I'll, I'll make like, complete Dad! sense. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's such a good point. To yeah, make. I'll put so many comments on the Instagram post, mate. Just wait. Like, We're well, not well, live yet though, are we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the oh, I forgot to press record. Yeah. I, um, I want to close with something positive. I always look yeah. for something positive and, I want to ask you both the same question. It's what, not just specifically about the coffee industry, but, mm-hmm. but obviously in relation to what we've been talking about. I mean, what gives you hope? What are the signs that there is a positive movement building or, or whatever? You know, what, what can we seize as a, as a positive from yeah. the direction we're going that's going to reduce people being mistreated and exploited in the, through this industry? I think there's two things for me. The first is just seeing more and more of our wholesale partners get really excited about... Uh, the initiatives that we're involved with, uh, what can we do to invest, how can we help, and and continue to, to buy and grow those volumes. We're seeing a big step as well towards sort of blockchain stuff as well, where we're seeing uh, not just, you know, coffee roasters and farmers talk about their price and what they're paying their pickers and everything else, but through to specialty coffee shops as well, being open in, in the prices that they're paying and they're charging as well. And maybe that'll be one day in the future where we'll see everybody go open book and work out there's, there's yeah, there's... Um, it's business. There needs to be some sort of economic value that yeah. goes across the supply chain, but so that everyone can be treated fairly. I'd say for me, I mean, the um, I can I I fall victim to some pessimism sometimes because I'm obviously exposed to quite a lot of stuff, and it can be difficult, like the um, the levels of poverty that you come across, and I'm sure you found the same, Brim, with some of the things that you've been involved in, where it can be very easy to get drawn into dark areas, but yeah. the um, there's so much. So all over the world, you have quiet little groups of amazing people working to make things better. And I think it's true in every industry, every sector. Like 
absolutely everywhere and it doesn't get any headlines because it's not exciting or dramatic and all of that but the um i know we've spoken before about a, a group that i'd like to draw a bit of attention to as we close so there's a, a co-op on idri island which is a an island on lake kivu which is the kivu uh, the lake in between rwanda and drc uh, and but idri island belongs to congo which is part, part of the drc there's a co-op there called rebuild women's hope uh, that was founded by a 28 year old woman um, which is in itself is a big thing for that part of East Africa. Like the gender relations there are not what they yeah. are in the West. Um, and it's basically been founded as a uh, an initiative to help improve conditions for uh, women who've been victims of domestic violence, uh, women like who are widowed from the war, um, from the 16 armies that are still active in DRC, in that part of DRC, wow. which is phenomenal, and victims of weaponized mass rape, which is like about as extreme, like, Sorry, because I'm bringing it back to negative things again before the end. But it's about as extreme circumstances as you can get. Yeah. And I think it's very hard to look at, like, from someone who comes from, like, a super tidy existence and my lovely little house just outside Bristol and everything's lovely and we're all good, it's very hard to look at people making the best out of that kind of situation and feel bad about where we're going. You yeah. know? Like, you can put people in anything, any situation, and they will, some people will try and make the best of it. And I think all we just need is to help support those people and we'll be fine. Mm. So. I couldn't sum it up better than that. I'm not <laughs> going to add anything to that at all. Guys, thanks so much for, for taking the time to sit down with me, talk coffee, and a lot of people are going to enjoy that. Some people might not. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think we needed to touch on it and I think we probably left a load of subjects that we can actually come back to sort of later on. 100%, series, yeah. Re-explore. So thanks, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, Greg. Cheers, Greg. So how was that for you? I thought about editing it down to, I don't know, something closer to an hour, but then I thought, well, if you're willing to listen to three guys talking about coffee for an hour, you're probably willing to listen to three guys talking about coffee for an hour and 20-something minutes. Isn't it great to hear about the way we can support coffee-growing communities across the developing world through these premium-based programs and all the great things that can be done when we pay people fairly for their crops and labour? It really makes a difference if you buy ethically sourced coffee at a fair price. We, of course, are one option at Blue Bear Coffee Company. Clifton are another, and there are many more great coffee companies out there. We need to move away from buying cheap, untraceable coffee that was produced by the exploitation of others. If you've got a business, or you're a member of a church, or a health club, or pretty much anywhere that serves coffee, I implore you to find out what coffee they're serving. Has it been ethically sourced? And if it hasn't, perhaps you can help change that. Thank you to Josh and Sam for coming on the podcast. I feel very lucky to have their expertise feeding into what we're doing at Blue Bear. And certainly, without Josh's support, Blue Bear would not be where it is today. Chloe and Robin, thank you for donating to our podcast Kickstarter campaign. We couldn't do these without you. You can find out more about Clifton Coffee at their website, cliftoncoffee.co.uk. And find out more about us at bluebearcoffee.com. Thanks for listening along. Until next time, peace.